0: Good to have you back. Yeah,
1: it's good to be back. Do you know how stand-up comedians are always talking about flying? And it's like, why is it this timeless source of comedy material? It's because they keep changing it <laughs> to drive you insane in
0: new ways. I bet there's a, for instance... Like, might follow. For
1: instance, we were flying from it doesn't matter where we were flying, flight great European
0: Um, place to other fucking (laughs) epic European place. Doesn't matter.
1: Uh, It was one of the budget airlines. And okay, so it was a budget airline, so you get what you pay for, and that's fine. But what they do, they say to you, Oh, you're with a family, so you can get on early. We didn't do that, and it ended up being really a good idea because they they basically packed everyone into the jetway and they just had to stand there for like 40 minutes. we were like not even on the plane when they when they announced over the plane into com- boarding complete. You know, so it's like on the one hand it's clear that they have metrics and they're measured by how many flights do you get check in, started on time, completed on time, but there's partially that logic to it, but the other logic is that it's like a fucking psyop and it's it is just designs to beat <laughs> us down. You know what I mean?
0: Well it's very easy to see that in, in air travel, but you're just justifying a very bad habit of mine, which is to arrive as late as possible, because in my ideal world, I don't stop moving my feet. From when I get out of the car to the airport until I board the plane, because I want to be so late that, you know, I'm like allowed to cut in line and I I mean, I don't stop moving my mouth either, and just everything keeps moving and I'm running and I'm buying stuff and going to the bathroom, you know, no standing, no sitting in like the gate area, and then I board the plane and they close the door behind me and give me a, a really nasty look. That's how I used to travel. And my partner has done a lot of work to make <laughs> me not do that anymore and it's yeah. like yeah i get the i get the other side like the the blood pressure c- control side I am the opposite from you. I basically, I just want to get
1: rid of my stuff, like my luggage, because I'm always traveling with checked luggage. I'm barely ever like going on weekend trips because I have, you know, this big family.
0: First of all, I like that you said I have this big family. I want to like, well, let's leave it ambiguous and have the listeners think that you (laughs) have like 19 children or something. Here's my comedy. And
1: also drinking. It's important for me, like if it's at a socially acceptable hour to like have a have a drink at the bar before the before your flight. That makes everything.
0: Let me tell you, smoother. the best part of Xanax is that there's no <laughs> yeah. socially acceptable or unacceptable <laughs> yeah, timing to it. It's pretty around the clock, whenever. whenever yeah, and at an
1: airport, it. socially acceptable is like a very flexible term. You know, it's a, it's this kind of exists on a different you know mode of temporality in a lot of ways. And one of the results of that is you can drink in the morning, but I don't so, do that. I want to let the listeners know it's only after twelve p.m. twelve on the dot. <laughs> That I would, then I would do it. I'm too embarrassed otherwise.
0: Is there a place on Earth, other than bus stations and DMVs, which are just sort of the same thing, you know, more extreme version of the same thing, where people look like they fucking hate you more than in a gate area when you, like, consider sitting in an open seat next to someone, you know, in those attached black pleather seats, right? That's, Everyone just yeah. like, looks like... I'll fucking murder you right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like the charging, the places, the seats where there's charging outlets and stuff.
0: Yeah, it's like you were me, like, Two minutes ago, when you had to sit down.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not take the logic of the airport and apply it to any other spheres of human activity, if that's possible. All right. Do you want to intro the episode now? It's a little bit. It's a little bit different than most weeks since I've been away. We haven't been able to record. I just got back. We wanted to get you a new episode this week, so we took an episode that we recorded earlier in the summer. Which, just for some context,
0: it is based on a news story that that had just come out that month. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's based on a news story that came out in the New York Times. May It's based on an annual conference, an academic conference that takes place in Kalamazoo, Michigan, Western Michigan University. And for those of you who aren't in Kalamazoo right now, apparently every year, like the international historical, let me see, the international... Fuck, whatever it is. Medieval studies. <laughs> this all the, like all
1: the different for all the different fields of study and academia have their own professional associations. And then for the departments, so there's the American Historical Association. Then for different fields, there's professional associations. So this like, was the, the association one for,
0: of Jewish studies. These yeah. for me, the ones I do like. Um, The Modern Language Association, the MLA, which puts out those footnote guidelines,
1: and then there's the one for
0: medievalists, and they were having their conference. So people, like, I think one side deliverable that our podcast should yield to you, the listeners, is a little bit of an idea of like how academia works. It's a thing that it's it's wrapped in obscurity. It's an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in irrelevance, tied on with a bow of resentment from every level with leather
1: elbow patches.
0: on a tweed blazer. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we do is we have conferences once a year, and scholars will propose papers that they want to read, or they'll have a panel on a certain topic, and, and there will be debates, or you know, and that's kind of how the knowledge, one of the ways that the knowledge is mediated and kind of synthesized and comes out into the world is at conferences. Often scholars present ideas that they're working on on the way to becoming books. And so it's it's a really key part of our professionalization, something that especially when an up and coming scholar. Like right now is the time that everyone's applying for in fact this conference that was last May, the deadline to apply for next May's version of it is like this week. So that's why
1: I'm always I was so bad at conference attendance grads <laughs> in my grad school career. Yeah, I was not on it. Because Because I just never paid I just didn't pay close <laughs> enough attention. I was focused on my own stuff. And I didn't have people around me, I guess, really. I shouldn't blame other people, but I mean blame. there wasn't there wasn't a sense of like, you need to, there wasn't so much guidance on you need to do this conference and that conference. I, the first conference I went to was the the big political science uh, conference though. That was interesting. So conferences can be like really exciting for scholars, but it also can be the place where you feel like it is the most futile and um, walled off kind of Activity you could do in the world where you're just sitting in this room and and everyone is kind of depressed um,
0: and talking about like four four people at the table talking to like twelve empty chairs yeah
1: so it's the it captures the the best and the worst I would say I mean we can talk more about the conference experience yeah. later on the we, hotel have, we have quite a scene. we have a ton of material for this episode so we should just get so, get through it quickly yeah
0: so in this particular conference there was a group of medieval scholars who are concerned about the use or abuse of the middle ages by the alt-right today in the present people on online and in these various alt-right white nationalist neo-Nazi forums using the medieval past to like justify their ideologies. That's a thing. First of all, it's happening. So we discuss like what the what's going on, what the fuck is the deal and how is the community of medieval historians and medieval scholars reacting to that? And there's a sort of divide that centers around some questions of diversity In the field, both in terms of who the scholars are, is that a diverse community, and the type of things that they study, is that diverse?
1: Yes, and then the second segment I share with Ethan, the treatise of the arch-reactionary internet political philosopher Mencius Moldbug, which draws a lot on uh, medieval themes but also kind of futuristic uh, libertarian ideas. So the two segments dovetail in some pretty interesting ways, and so I hope I hope you enjoy it. I do have two things that I wanted to mention. One is that the day after we recorded our last podcast about the Grand Tour, I was driving around onto the Swiss side of Lago Maggiore, and I saw a sign that said Grand Tour. So it was some part where I was was like literally on part of the Grand Tour. So that was some that was some serendipity right there. And secondly, I looked up Mount Blanc and is on it's the border like between Italy France and, and Italy. France. So I yeah, was
0: right. I, I looked that up immediately after we released the episode and we're wrong. Yeah. We were
1: wrong. Well we were right. I mean I was right when You it, were right at the border Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Half point for you. Half point
1: negative yeah. points for me. Okay. Well with that being said, uh let's get
0: to the segments. Double, double two. It's my group in three gig we're back. So the article, the New York Times article, says, Does medieval studies have a white supremacy problem of its own? And this beef that's happening among medieval historians at their like annual conference between specifically a group called medievalists, of is it color. medievalists of color, who some of whom are boycotting this annual conference because they feel that medieval studies and its current iteration is like contributing to white supremacy. The term that's used, the term that's used so often is upholding white supremacy. Upholding. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to go through some points in this article, not just summarizing the New York times article, which was a news story, but jumping to some larger issues that it deals with. Yeah. And so the first thing, the thing that gets everyone's attention is Nazis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably like how this got to be an article, are Nazis using or weaponizing the Middle Ages? Max, maybe I think you might be able to give some better examples of some instances in which that's been the case recently. Well, I mean, if you just go
1: online
0: to the places
1: where white nationalists or the alt-right or neo-Nazis, whatever you like, where they gather, I mean, you, you see medieval imagery, right? I mean, this romanticized vision of... Holy warriors, knights in shining armor, all that kind of stuff, damsels in distress. That all kind of like romantic Middle Ages stuff is really not a huge, huge part of it, but it is a part of it. You know, obviously, the the alt right, these extreme conservatives, have a critique of modern life. And a lot of what they're critiquing depends on this idea, nostalgic idea of an idealized past when. A big part of it is that there was like racial purity in the West and the virtuousness of Western civilization and society in this idealized historical period is connected to the racial purity that existed and the more strict kind of gender hierarchies that existed so there's so there's the racism of it and the kind of erasure this is something that medievalists of color talk about the erasure of minorities from medieval europe even though they did exist Mm -hmm. there's the the gender relations the sexism and also of course the 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 critique of democracy and this kind of longing
0: for the unshakable authority that medieval monarchs supposedly exercised and, so, and that gets into the, what you'll talk about in your segment a yeah. bit more. And there's also a, a hearkening back to the Crusades. And this article mentions a meme from the 2016 campaign of Donald Trump in medieval armor on a horse. Yeah, so the, that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. The Crusader about, yeah. slogan, Deus Vult, which means yeah. God wills it. So that's out there. And like, there's been shout outs from like the Charlottesville extremists and the mass murder in New Zealand to the Crusades. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting because the crusades as sort of a political, you know, explosive charge predates this moment. We talk a lot about how different you and I on the podcast have already talked about how different the left, right fissures and cleavages were in the 2000s, in the first decade under Bush. Mm-hmm. And in that period, you know, the, the crusader, that was a word, you know, he used it, I think in like a state of the union that we were like, we we're going to go on a crusader freedom, or maybe it was a press conference and everyone was like, Ooh, he shouldn't have done should that. Should have yet. done that. But it was, the reason it was potentially problematic was because of the presumed opposition between Christendom and the Christian West and the world of Islam. And it seems like this use of the crusade has a really different, it's a much more domestic it's not like a, we're going to go out there to the Orient and do a crusade, but it's actually kind of like the other part of the crusades that people forget about, which is that a lot of the killing was the crusaders going through Europe and like killing Jews. And, yeah. and then as they move further East, even like other types of Christians. Yeah. So yeah. So there's the crusades. And another thing about, you know, medieval coming back, you know, there's that famous line in Pulp Fiction uh, where Vingram says that they're going to get medieval on this motherfucker, you know, yeah. meaning yeah. torture him. <laughs> Uh-huh. And the association of the Middle Ages with extreme forms of physical brutality and yeah. torture and sadism almost. We could like do an episode about Game of Thrones about that. All I would say is that also ISIS, I feel like in the American media imaginary, is kind of this, oh my God, they're doing all this medieval shit. They're beheading people and they're, yeah. they're like this resurgence, it was imagined, of medieval violence in a medieval kind of civilizational war. And so... Now I want to get to the actual discipline of medievalists, like academics who study the Middle Ages, in this charge of white supremacy. So one important thing to point out, and the article points it out, actually I'll quote the article. In Europe, academic study of the Middle Ages developed in tandem with a romantic nationalism that rooted the nation state in an idealized past populated by Anglo-Saxons and other supposedly distinct quote-unquote races. So that's a key point about The 19th century and the political ideas of the 19th century, um, many of which were derived from 19th century romantic literature and, you know, opera and the arts. Yes. So, I mean, this was the time when the rise of
1: nationalism and so people were generating this idea of what we have, you know, the Hungarians, we have always been a nation and that has been continuous throughout history. And history is kind of the story of us seeking glory in certain cases, or simply independence in other cases. Um, And so they take that idea of a nation, a very racialized nation, right? I mean, in the Hungarian case, it's like, we came from, you know, Eurasia, and we were these, um, nomads. And then they, like,
0: write it back. Like a, a really, like, mythical eagle, like, brought them in his talents yes, or something. Yes. Exactly. And that's true. Like, uh, that's true. And like, kind of fucking. And it's around. projected backwards into the medieval past, right? Yeah. So,
1: like, the French, they the French, they developed this idea that we were, you know, we were this French people in the past. And sometimes, you know, in the case of the English, it's like, well, they're Anglo-Saxons, you know, that it's kind of complicated because they're also native Celtic Britons and stuff like that. But they, you maybe
0: focus on the more heroic, Aspects of um, King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table. And yeah. And so yeah, I'll say something about literature here that's an important thing, which is many, maybe even most of our ideas about the Middle Ages come from books that were written in the 19th century. And mm-hmm. in the 19th century, had ideas like this idea that there are races that were not actually in circulation or in existence, that type of idea. In the Middle Ages, in which they're talking about. So they're projecting right. retrospectively. And so, and like you say, the idea of nations, so the idea that who we are is meaningfully connected to who the people who lived in this place and spoke this language were during the medieval period. That's something that is taken for granted in, I think, many people's. Baseline assumption of what nations are, but it's an oh, yeah. idea that was produced by various ideologies in the 19th century. And one of them I want to talk about, because I had a dissertation chapter on this that ended up not getting into the disc, but it'll be in something later, is about Sir Walter Scott, who was, I think, the best selling English author, English language author of like the 19th century. Wow. And he was a Scottish. And he wrote these historical novels that were romanticist. I can't even think of any. Did he write Ivanhoe? He wrote Ivanhoe. That's the book that I write about. Ivanhoe, Rob Roy. Uh, um, A lot of them are sort of like national origin stories for the Scots and the English These novels are written mostly in the 18-teens. Ivanhoe is sort of how the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans, the Francophone Normans, ultimately synthesized into one identity under Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, which is Crusader era. Yeah, okay. But it also has a secondary plot about the Jews of England in that period, because this was the period that the Jews were ultimately expelled from England. And he's Uh, actually incredibly... Um, sophisticated and, and nuanced view, for example, with Jews, of, of the treatment of racial difference, or in that case, religious difference. That was the. Well, this was the period where the Jews of Europe were legally emancipated, too. The period in which he's writing. Yeah. It's beginning to happen. It's, yeah. It's very. When he's writing Ivanhoe, I think 1819, it's only in its very early and unsteady stages, Jewish emancipation. Anyway, he's definitely in some ways an advocate for it. The amazing thing about Scott is a lot of his ideas and the ideas from these novels were picked up on by some really unsavory groups in the latter half of the 19th century and and maybe even again today. Like the Confederacy was loved Walter Scott novels, you know. There's a lot of militarism in them. And yeah, again, like knights and damsels in distress. The point I'm trying to make is that the fact that a love for the Middle Ages and a romantic relationship to ideas about nationality started among basically popular fiction in this period, in poetry to some extent, isn't to say that all those people were like proto-Nazis. Yes. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's really
1: easy just to take any kind of intellectual or cultural legacy that Nazis drew upon in the 20th century and then kind of identify a stain, like this genealogical work where you say, well, this is the original sin that eventually unfolded into Nazism, you know, in some cases, many centuries later. For example, like the idea that, you know, Martin Luther was, I mean, he was anti-Semitic, but that he was the kind of inventor
0: of an eliminationist strand of anti-Semitism, which is a little bit of a case there. But what that would be in his era is not what it would become in the 1930s, just because. Yes. And also, Nietzsche is a big example of this. I
1: mean, he's he's said many, look, Nietzsche is a very complicated example. I don't think we need to really get into it. But to blame him, to call him a proto-Nazi is like kind of to vulgarize his thought in the same way that the Nazis took his thought and
0: vulgarized it, you know what I mean? In the same way in which they took romantic nationalism um, yes, and, and, and romanticism in general and vulgarized it and had a very, well, it's especially these like Schmucks today. For one thing, I would say the actual Nazis were much more interested in in the classical and the pre-Christian pagan era than in the medieval era. I'm not Mm -hmm. an expert on that, but that's my sense. The contemporary alt-right online people, they clearly just have kind of no idea what they're talking about when it comes to the source material. So now I want to talk about the beef within the discipline. Yes. So what's the conflict? So does the discipline of medieval studies uphold white supremacy? And there's a similar fight happening in every academic discipline and and kind of in like every sphere, you know, do the movies, do the Marvel movies, does Game of Thrones, does does sort of any like cultural production uphold white supremacy? I'm going to give what I think are some positive interventions that would push back against an overly white, monolithic, kind of myopic version of the Middle Ages that yeah. it happened, but then also critique some of the critique. So a portion of my graduate study, at the very beginning, I thought I was going to basically become like a scholar of medieval Islamic and Jewish mysticism and poetry and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I took a few courses on the Middle Ages and and did some research there that, again, may ultimately come out in some future scholarly career. But I came across, relative to this discussion, there's a book that I like highly recommend, even completely I would recommend it to non-academics. It's called Before European Hegemony, the world yeah. system Nadia Abulugod. J Janet right? Abulugod. Janet. Fuck. There's some other Nadia. Um, um yeah, I have it. I never read it though. There's a lot of Abulugods. The World System 1250 to 1350. And what this book basically puts forth and the the case studies are like amazing. It's like a, a page turner. But the basically globalization as if we're talking about a global system of trade that integrates, you know, vastly otherwise unconnected regions into one large flow of goods and yeah. also ideas but uh, mostly goods, that is not entirely the product of European expansion and, and imperialism in the early modern era, that there was already a global system in basically the 13th and 14th century. And it was yeah. primarily can I, can I interrupt- by... The Islamic world. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, can I answer so yes, exactly. It was created by Islamic expansion. She's
1: actually arguing against an earlier idea, which is a very Eurocentric idea, which is that Islamic expansion kind of severed the Mediterranean world in two and actually created, you know, economic stagnation because the the idea is, well, if the mediterranean is like the center of the world it's the most important like engine of trade and commerce and the in the medieval the and world the and so by got to use both sides of the sea yes yes so so by cutting it in half islam the rise of islam led to you know economic stagnation and this argument pages. is actually saying that it, it really actually it, islam's rise integrated a bunch of different regions into this trade system, which was much more wide ranging than was previously thought. Yeah. And it included like large, large
0: swaths of Europe even. Yeah. Because they were importing slaves from Europe. Even like Polish farmers in like the backwoods of Poland are integrated in like fairs, like weekly fairs in Ghent, that all that can get tied to like what's going on economically in Baghdad and in Samarkand, which is in Uzbekistan. And, yeah. uh, and, and a lot of it also has to do with like, the Mongol conquests and the Mongol conversion to Islam. And, and there's, there's a parallel field called Mediterranean Studies. It's uh, mm-hmm. so it was kind of a subfield that medievalists were really at the forefront of making Mediterranean studies a thing. I think it was basically yeah. created by medieval historians. Mm-hmm. I have a foot in that field. But yeah, it's the idea that we shouldn't look at the Middle Ages as Europe is in this you know, biodome, totally disconnected from the rest of the world, having its dark age, waiting to have its renaissance with no influence. But but rather, the, so much of European culture, even in that period, is the product of interactions with the Arab world with its Jewish minorities, and and especially through what was going on in Islamic Spain, in El Andalus. So there's a lot of really interesting texts that have, um, I don't think they've decolonized the Middle Ages, and i will talk about that term. It's not my favorite term. Um, yeah. But that has shown us historically, and in, in, in ways that help model ways of thinking about the present, you know, that cultures are not unitary in their economic life, or in their cultural life, or in their artistic life, or whatever. So, that's some pretty cool stuff. Some of my critiques, though, of like where this current beef is going. Can I answer for one second? So yeah. Right for the... me, one of the problems is,
1: okay, so, so on the one hand, there's a question is, are the Middle Ages a playground for the alt-right that's a term that I heard used by someone who was being this uh, writer Joe Livingstone they were being very I don't know a little bit snide and snarky on the day of the Notre Dame fire because they have a background they're a writer for I can't remember which magazine they were saying like after the Notre Dame fire yeah uh, you guys don't know as much as I do um, because I, I used to study this in college, like at a graduate level. And it's the playgrounds of the alt-right and all this kind of stuff. And so the idea being is on, on the one hand, you have a problem. Does yeah, does medievalism have, do the middle ages have a white supremacy problem? Is the subject matter or this kind of historical imagination, is that being used by white supremacists? There's another. And, and what of, should we do about it? And what should we do about it? Yeah, how is the work that scholars do or historians or whatever literary critics do? Is is that contributing somehow to it by allowing this idea of a lily white medieval past to, to continue? Then there's the question of like literally medievalism as a workplace, as like a body of workers who have to work together. Because sometimes this idea of decolonizing disciplines, things like that, And the idea of upholding it, sometimes it seems like, well, you know, the way you stop upholding white supremacy is by funding my research or by having my panel. Yeah, and then who
0: competing with you for funding is going to oppose that because they want the funding, even though it's not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with your premises. Yeah. So the idea is for me is like yes. I mean I think absolutely medievalists
1: have to fight against the takeover of their discipline by by white supremacists. But it gets entangled with like the whole thing gets entangled with professional competition um, in ways that can sometimes be like cynically used, or it's hard
0: to like always assume that everyone's acting in good faith. So, firstly, the takeover of the discipline. Listen. If an alt right troll online has this idea that oh, in the Middle Ages, like women listen to men, and that's what they should do now, I don't think medieval scholars. That's not a takeover. That's an appropriation or a misappropriation. Yeah, that's what. I mean. It's a better word to, to use. You know, yeah. but, but but it is put in terms of I think the the intimacy and, and proximity. People are very sloppy with their terms. So to me, I I like to break these things down into kind of comprehensible pieces. Is the predominance of white people in this profession a problem? You know, is it, you know, in a numeric sense, are there way too many white people or way too many white men relative to what would be and, and we have to, that would engender? I think it's way easier to disagree with the allegation or make the allegation than to have the hard conversation about what numbers of representation of different faculties is an appropriate level of diversity. Um, I think that's the only conversation you can have because you have to say, how do we remedy that problem on the level of who are the scholars are scholars of color or, or, or women or of different religions being systematically excluded. I can only speak, you know, in my experience, almost every scholar I worked with, the vast majority of the scholars I worked with were women, and and many of them were not from the the West. So, but I don't know, you know, that's because I study, like, the Middle East. So, like, what do I know? I don't know what the whole discipline's like. Um, Yeah, I would say that, too. I mean, I I, I had to say, yeah, I agree that probably medieval studies
1: needs more diversity, and it needs to, they need to take a hard look at themselves as far as how they can get that going. And they need to take this other this other problem of white supremacists using it or appropriating it. They need to take that seriously too, but they should be kept separate well they don 't need to be kept separate but you need to understand when one of those problems is, is going on and when it's, the, when it's the other.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so to that very point, so here's going to be my sort of deep dive. I'm going to read you from a session abstract from a, um, a panel at the American Historical Association annual meeting. So in academia, we have these associations by discipline. They tend to meet once a year at a big conference, and scholars propose panels, and they, and they talk and read papers or debate. And this one is called Decolonizing the Middle Ages, a roundtable. In answer to present challenges. And so, this session, which has like the longest abstract I've ever seen for a session, <laughs> like I don't go to this meeting because I'm a comparative literature scholar. I go to like a Jewish studies one and a literature one. But here's what they said they, First of all, they say uh, historians of medieval Europe have recently faced a strong intellectual challenge from colleagues conversant in critical theory primarily housed in literature departments. So this is always funny for me because I am in a literature department and and, and they're saying that, oh, you guys are like bringing all these critical theory challenges to us. And I don't think it's always us. But I think these people are are down with those challenges. So what they basically say is that principles and methods of medieval historiography, quote, are programmed to support a predominantly cisgendered, white, male, heterosexual, Christian patriarchal regime of power hyphen knowledge um okay. knowledge it's foucault it's, it's it's foucault which by the way he used a slash not a hyphen and quote regardless of the individual historian's own intellectual and political commitments uh, what is needed therefore is a movement to reshape the historical study of the pre-modern past a movement cognizant of critical race theory intersectionality and indigenous studies among other critical frameworks failing to do so contributes to the ongoing white nationalist appropriation of the middle ages. I'm I'm skipping some stuff, promoting toxic masculinity, a worldview free from white guilt that can be violently deployed against vulnerable populations. So my problem with that is just, I don't think that that is good intellectual work. I think you lose analytical utility when you have that, like, that's where I feel like it's this filler. It's like you open your mouth and you have to say all these words that are the bad yeah. things, white, male, heterosexual, Christian, patriarchal power knowledge. And in those things, if you don't identify those things, embrace intersectionality uh, in indigenous studies and critical race theory, then you're contributing to like the actual violence, all the bad violence in the world patriarchal violence and racist violence and so on. And so there's this equation between hurt and harm on the end side of this chain of production. Yes. And the identities that are being privileged in the production of power and knowledge, you know, we could talk about this forever, but I just think that that depends on making way too many categories substitutable for one another, you know, and, and that's the danger in intersectionality is it doesn't really account for difference There is meaningful difference between the violence. Like I say this as as a Jew who our communities are targeted by white supremacists who embrace some of these medieval ideas. But that violence to me is not on the end of a a production spectrum with a discipline that has been programmed, which makes it sound like it's a computer program. It's It's a white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, Christian computer program that's leading to all this stuff. And I think that there's so many layers of different operations of power and knowledge within the different parts of the world that we're talking about. Are we talking about scholarship? Are we talking about trolls online? Are we talking about dudes who shoot synagogues or mosques? Are we talking about who gets invited to this panel, which is the thing they talked about in the New York Times article, and who gets grant funding? And I think it has less analytical potency when you try to put that all into one mouthful than to do the hard work of what problem are we trying to address in each instance? And from what standpoint can we address it?
1: Yeah. And I think that kind of work does happen. The thing about that abstract you read is it, it doesn't sound like it was written by someone who was actually thinking about m- medieval studies when they wrote it. it. could They could have literally been talking about any
0: social science or humanities they could have some been talking time. about the Oscars. They could have been talking about the yeah, cast. It's, a, it's mean, a
1: hammer. That's the whole yeah. thing. It's like it's a hammer, and this everything becomes the nail, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. you can just hit it. And it's just a one size fits all solution. But I mean, you if you take that kind of general way of thinking or approaching your studies, then you can find some interesting things out. You can say, wait a second. Well, people seem to think that the Middle Ages were literally white. Well, let's find out whether that's true. And then you find, oh, actually, look, there's all these people of color in even in medieval England. So what was it like for them? What was their social life, a social reality like? How did people see them? How do people understand those differences? That's the kind of work that people are doing. But it doesn't need to be cased in this verbiage, like of what you just of what you what you were just reading. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the work that is important has stuff like that in like the introduction and conclusion, where they're kind of yeah, just start spouting it this just, stuff. But it just used yeah. to be
0: so much. I remember when I would read radical stuff like "Inside Every You Know White Man Is this Scared Patriarchal Creature Who Doesn't Want to Be Critiqued," and I would read stuff by like Judith Butler's students. And I'd be like, uh, ah. but then I'd be like, no, 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 this is important. And that stuff, even though I'm not saying this was the stuff I was embracing that it was like easy on straight white men, but it was so theoretically rigorous compared to this. It was just so much more intellectually complex and robust. And here's the irony. What all this intersectionality, a lot of th- those terms end up being deployed in favor of an ideology that there are pure identities, and mm. there's white identities, and there's identities of color, and we have too much white, and we need less of them and more of color, but it makes those categories unimpeachable, and it yeah. doesn't subject them to the same critical operation, that all types of identity are produced historically, that they're mutable, that identities are multiple, and, and whatever, it's just saying... It buys into the paradigm of race. It just buys into it from the other side and says, we're sick of being on the losing side. But it doesn't, it's very not deconstructive. And I know deconstruction's out right now. But yeah, like like you said, there's interesting stuff being done. The the other thing, though, is that, so say you're going to study, like, were there people from Africa in York in, you know, 1108, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. And what you want to find out is that there were and everyone was like chilling and it was great so that you can go to the alt-right Ooh. troll online and say, hey, it wasn't all white people. There were three Arab dudes chilling in York selling leather or something. That's very dangerous. Well,
1: that's, I mean, that's, that's one thing. I, bet, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff you can do with no, sure, sure. learning more about race from the Middle Ages. Like, for example, you see stuff, people on Twitter, like educated people. Who are saying basically like, well, yeah, the idea of race was invented in the in the Enlightenment, or the idea of race was invented in the 19th century. Sometimes people scientific racism, mm-hmm. and so they say we're living in this, you know, in this Enlightenment world or in this 19th century scientific world, and it's like okay, but they had an idea of race in the Middle Ages, and they had, you know some sense of it's racial different. difference. It was, it was really different. But it was, di- I mean, of course it, it was different. And, and it but you have to understand where, how it's different and how it leads to, you know, you have to understand how it's different. You can't just say, I really don't like that kind of history where you're just like, well, the categories that we have were just invented whole cloth at yeah, some period, and sure. now we live with it.
0: I also don't like everything that we know is what 19th century people thought. Yeah, Just because that's also a source access. We have way more source access to the 19th century than we do to the 11th yeah. century or 12th century. So, Sure. But I I just want to make this point, though, is that if you go there looking to refute alt-right trolls, that's a bad way to go into scholarly activity. Because what you might find is that they were like super, maybe you can't call it racist because that term wasn't operative, but they were super fucking hateful people who were burning people at the stake and, you know, a lot of horrible shit happened. And so it's important to complicate the picture where the picture is historically inaccurate and to fill in to provide more accuracy and more detail and more nuance. But to look to the past for an alternative model that will refute the alternative model of stupid Nazis. That's not what the past is going to give you. Uh, You know, I don't think that that agenda is the most fruitful, you know, no, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen Twitter threads like that where people are like, listen
1: up folks. I'm here to tell you that, uh, the middle ages were queer as hell. And then they like, have two examples of someone who have might've done some, some kind of gender bending. You it, know, just we like.
0: can, it doesn't fix the present to find out that there were some exceptions in the past. What are, we tra- are, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to tell the story of the past? That's history. Or are we trying to fix... Our problems in the present. I think there's utility, but it's a limited utility to like, oh, there was this guy who dressed up like a girl and called himself a girl in, now I'll pick a different medieval city, I don't know, in Frankfurt, in Worms, yeah. in 1328, in Worms. whatever. Yes, he was a Jew, he was a queer Jew of color. He was a queer Jew he, of color. He's just season six of Transparent is a flashback yeah. to his life. Yes, yeah, so
1: what you were saying earlier about identities being historically conditioned, I mean, that for me is the or one of the main... In historical scholarship is that you learn. Yeah, so you don't go back and say, actually, you know, the Middle Ages were a period of racial harmony. You don't go back and say, well, the Middle Ages were this time when it's not
0: harmony, but it's also not purity.
1: It's not purity either, but it's also not. They weren't also racist in the same way that people are racist today, but rather like you understand how everyone's viewpoints are. Historically conditioned, and so that helps you understand how your own way of seeing the world is historically, which, which by the
0: way, that was what Foucault's historicism was was about. It wasn't about like yelling at everyone about their power knowledge. It was about tracing genealogies in order to situate discourses within within their context. But that applies to our disc- all the discourses we're using now. There's no outside of it where you just get to stand on the outside and say, "We here we have reached a place of enlightened trans plural queer." intersectional indigeneity and from this kosher standpoint we can look at all these other shit you know there is no that we're all in history you know we're all in discourse actually is more what he would say um so there's apparently like one scholar who sounds like a humongous piece of shit who's uh embraced yeah i read some of her stuff yeah she had you heard of her before this yeah, I had heard of her when the the whole controversy around her was popping
1: off between her and this, um, what is this woman's name? Dr. I Fulton forget. Brown. Fulton Brown anyway. is a tenured professor, and she Later kind of Fulton attacked Brown. this um, Kim, this um, junior scholar in a very uncollegial way, and it seems tinged with some of the nasty politics. And so she's become more and more kind of
0: outspokenly sympathetic to the alt-right stuff like that, so... Yes, I had heard of her. And and so there's this part in the article, this last thing I'll say, which is one scholar, uh, Hal Saul, I don't know who this is, um, says there's this idea that if you talk to someone, you are staying. I think he's because he's like still friends with the all right lady, but he's like, I disagree with her politics, but she's his friend. Anyone who's vaguely middle of the road or conservative is suddenly racist or white nationalist. Dr. Kim, a member of Medievalists of Color, she's the one who was in the fight with the all right lady, said white medievalists who say they fear weighing in Lest they be accused of racism are quote enacting a classic white fragility script, so white fragility like the white people like can't take the heat that they fill out all the time. I think that's a really yeah. potent term and it's a useful term It's not always unimpeachable i am not mm-hmm. trying to get into this particular debate. I mean I assume that that all right woman's like a psycho and'm uh, doctor that, Kim's... That's what I would side, have but... to say
1: about her is she seems when from my, when I read her, some essay she wrote about this whole thing, she seems like an eccentric. I wouldn't say she's like at the center of the profession. She
0: seemed like a kind of uh, peculiar personality, put it that way. Yeah. But like there, there are problems, like you say, with the hammer of intersectionality can become, and in this, in this case, but it can become like there's this idea of contagion, like a rhetoric of hyperbole where blatant everything's blatant even when it's clearly you're talking about something subtle (laughs) yeah you know like if we don't do x then we're enabling the trolls and it's like "Mm, i don't think the trolls really give a shit what these academics are doing the trolls are trolls they're not really that well versed they're not like oh did you see that abstract for that session in the american historical association at kalamazoo michigan Mm -hmm. we're right (laughs) you know they don't know about that shit
1: yeah. And there's the there's question really that we haven't talked about, which is how these disciplines are organized internally and who's getting promoted and whose careers are getting ahead and whatnot. And then there's the work that the profession is producing that goes out there. And then there's the internet and web forums and Twitter and stuff. But there's like, we're missing the kind of connective tissue there of like, how is, what is connecting the scholarship with the popular discourse about the middle ages and it's like that's a pretty tricky thing to understand how it's working i mean there's stuff like this where there's a news article so some people might be reading that in the new york times and then there's stuff like well imagine a documentary you know, something like Cosmos. Cosmos was a big popular documentary. It was about with astronomy and history of astronomy. But then imagine like a big, The
0: one with Neil deGrasse Tyson or the one with Carl yes. Sagan?
1: Well, both. I mean, the, yeah, the, the more recent one was yeah, just a remake. But the point is, like, what if they did something like that for the Middle Ages and they made sure to do like intersectionality in it? And they made sure to talk about people of color and gender nonconformity um, and all that kind of stuff in the Middle Ages... They might be it might all be good scholarship. I'm not saying it, but the people who you're trying to reach out to, a lot of people would there'd would be a huge backlash to it, right? They'd just be like, Well, fuck you, you just shoehorns all this crap, you're shoveling it down our mouths, all this PC stuff. I don't under I don't I'm not sure how much of a of an impact you could make. I'm not really sure how. I mean it would be it's a, it'd be a much more painstaking, slow process
0: of like making a dent in this idea, this um, problematic middle ages. And, and that's I my problem. Is like the way you fight this is cultivate critical intellectual habits. That's the side that I'm on. And so if people think that we can win this battle against neo-fascism by cultivating, I would say, like lazy intellectual habits, to me, they're not fighting. They're, they're using the wrong weapons. And that's not how we're going to win. And at the end of the day, you also kind of can't reduce yourself to the terms of, you know, intellectuals, you know, academics need to have academic discussions try to make their work speak to society and try to shape society to be a place that can think about these type of debates, but a lot of stuff in academia in the last few years, especially when it comes to the Middle East, has devolved into like really smart people saying really like, you know, juvenile shit to each other on Twitter because they hate each other. And it's like, ugh, that's a bad look for scholarship. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Every day is doomsday, living in this death trap. Some look the other way, but me, I'm cocking a hammer back. If a food violates, set am straight. Fuck a traitor, call me dog. it because I'm shooting first and asking questions later. Okay, so for the second segment, we're going to stick with this theme of the Middle Ages to a certain extent and talk about Mencius Moldbug, a.k.a., well, that's the nom de plume of Curtis Yarvin. Had you ever heard of this guy before I brought him up?
0: Not no. at all. It sounds like a Harry Potter character.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so he took this name. I mean, I don't know why he took this name. I Mencius knew of him. Mencius Moldbug. Yeah. I knew of him as one of the more influential, quote unquote, philosophers of the alt right and the dark enlightenment. I, I could just read you the, the Wikipedia article, which says that Curtis Yarvin, also known by the pen name Mencius Moldbug, is an American political theorist and computer scientist. That's important that he's a computer scientist. Writing in his blog, Unqualified Reservations, he played a fundamental role in the dark enlightenment and alt-right movement. He is the creator of the Urbit computing platform. That's not actually that important, but his company was backed by Peter Thiel, who is, you know, the
0: infamous PC guy.
1: So do you know what the dark enlightenment is? Had you heard of that um,
0: term before? Tell the tell the listeners. You you briefly told me the other night on the phone.
1: Another term for it is neo reaction, and it is kind of like a highbrow alt right. The idea of the dark enlightenment is this: it's this secret knowledge that's the reverse of enlightenment knowledge, and it's this realization that human beings, you know, shouldn't live under democracy, shouldn't live in liberal societies. They should live in pretty much totalitarian or or kind of like monarchical, very hierarchical societies instead, because basically of human nature. And a lot of these guys come from this Dem background reactionary type stuff. Sounds like the Mercers, too. The Mercer's really? So those, but those guys are like, those people, they're like more religious types, right?
0: No, I don't think so. Like, the father Mercer, I think is Robert Mercer, is like a computer scientist, mm-hmm. invented something that is what made him a zillionaire that has to do with like financial markets. And they're all like, they've funded some of the studies, unfortunately, for like, you know, the thing how like Silicon Valley people are like into experiments where rich dudes like take young people's blood. And mm-hmm. Like, they're fucking all in on that and like saving your piss and like, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, piss, blood, also like the legalization of hallucinogens. So it's this, they're like, I think it's more of this like libertarian, like tech dystopia, utopia types. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's very much sounds familiar based on what I read. So I was
1: looking at his books. I was looking at his website on qualified reservations because I just kind of thought, well, maybe I should, you know, read something by him to see, to understand what's going on here. And I saw one of his books was called Patchwork and the subtitle is a political system for the 21st century and this is supposed to be his positive vision chapter 1 is called a positive vision so so moving away from his critique of modern society and towards a a vision for the future. Of course, since this is neo, his movement is called a neo reaction. Um, he looks to the past and the reason that that this particular book caught my eye was because I looked at the cover and it is a map of the Holy Roman Empire from like the middle ages. So it's called patchwork and you can see the little map where it's, it is a Holy Roman Empire, but within it are, you know, dozens and dozens of tiny little states and territories and bishoprics and stuff within it, you know, so that's what I I was like, wow, okay. So we want to talk about the medieval period. Well, here's the thing. You should have listened to episode 4B of our podcast that hasn't gone live yet. Yes. I mean, this is going to be a theme, I think, of our show is talking about the Holy Roman Empire for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I decided to, to like read it and I was just wanted to tell Ethan about it and then we could talk about a few things. And I want to keep this as short as possible. He's a very strange guy. Obviously, like his his basic idea is like, well, take a kind of be like a snob about intellectual history, but then also have a kind of an engineer's point of view or mentality, like a problem solving kind of computer engineer mentality with regard to political philosophy. And like he talks about how his system is scalable and stuff like that. And
0: is he where does he live in? he He lives
1: in San Francisco. Oh my god. <laughs> I could walk by this guy in the street for all I know. I, I you know, it's possible. So the the basic idea is that all of world history since 1688, the Glorious Revolution in England, which is he takes as a starting point for modern liberalism and democracy and government. That's been this like interregnum. This has been this disaster for humanity. And his basic point is that if you look around, he uses San Francisco a lot as an example. If you look around San Francisco, it's really dangerous. Like you could get killed at night. So he has this idea of like living in San Francisco, which is utterly unfamiliar to me. Where it's like it's, <laughs> it's this you know
0: 1970s like crime hellscape
1: uh where you're just running away from yeah it's like the warriors you're just like running away from different gangs um the like warriors
0: the based, movie from the 70s yeah, not the yeah, team
1: yeah right exactly so he like looks around san francisco and he's like modern society was a mistake basically because of like all the the, the people he sees as undesirable Going around, and he's like, "Well, how could how could we manage society better?" And the idea behind patchwork is that the entire actually, I I should read the quote where he just he lays it out. He says, "The basic idea of patchwork is that as the crappy governments we inherited from history are smashed, they should be replaced by." a global spider web of tens, even hundreds of thousands of sovereign and independent mini countries. So that might be confusing, but he meant possibly hundreds of thousands of countries. Yeah. Uh, each governed by its own joint stock corporation without regard to the residents' opinions. If residents don't like their government, they can and should move. The design is all exit and no voice. That's voice and exit is a reference to some kind of social science theory that I'm not familiar with. But and that's and a basic
0: like idea. Like That was a temporary solution during the beginning of the Reformation, right? That if you don't, if you're Protestant in the Catholic territory, you just have to leave.
1: Yes, the use emigrandi Exactly. That was the solution. If your uh, local ruler wanted his territory to be Catholic and you're a Protestant, you could go. Which was, is really hard because back in that period leaving your home meant a kind of social death because your privileges and rights were kind of tied to where you lived. Not so in the case of the patchwork. I mean, he sees it as a much more of a yeah, free flowing. Like you can go, you can leave. Um, it's more like a yeah, a very open free market of for citizens um, or subjects. They're not. There's no citizens in this in this system. Everyone is like basically ruled by an iron fist. He says it's like it, he he says it's Orwellian, but like in a good way. So the point is like he it's the way he just outlined it, right? So so each tiny territory is governed by. It is like a joint stock company. So anyone can own stock in this company and they're traded freely on a market. And they, and he he says, hopefully the people who own the stock don't even live in the territory um, that's governed by the, the the company or corporation. And they elect a delegate who basically functions as an absolute authority over that territory and he even he even uses like computer science terms with like saying how how the delegate or ruler or sovereign is going to like maintain authority and it's like there's security forces that have cryptographic keys in their guns i think he's
0: being being literal though right like that there is Like everyone on the board has a, a cryptographic chain of command.
1: Yes, exactly. So, so there's no board. He says it's just direct. It's direct um, stockholder control, and they have to basically re-enable the delegates by re- like renewing this cryptographic key periodically, like every day, and then that flows down, and that then the delegate can unlock the guns of the security forces who then like can do basically whatever they want um, to subjects. Uh, So it's like, he's he's really
0: psyched about that too. Like about the, the like absolute power of uh, security and liberty do not conflict. Security always wins. (laughs)
1: Yes. So he's very much into security. He's very much into like, his main problem seems to be like, how do you take a city like San Francisco and make it cleaner? He's like, he wants it to be like Disneyland. He says that pretty explicitly. He's like, how do I take a city like San Francisco, which is a mess and make it like Disneyland? That's like the, the whole thing. And he's like, But so basically we should have cops that could just like blow you away if you do anything wrong. Yeah. So here's the cryptographic thing. I'm going to read that to, to make it more make more sense to the listeners so the standard patchwork remedy for this problem and the problem being uh the relationship between the the shareholders and the ceo slash delegate executive power is the patchwork remedy for this problem is the cryptographic chain of command ultimately power over the realm truly rests with the shareholders because they use a secret sharing or similar cryptographic algorithm to maintain control over its root keys Authority is then delegated to the board, if any, the CEO and other officers, and thence down into the military or other security forces. At the leaves of this tree are computerized weapons, which will not fire without cryptographic authorization. And so, like, when he says that, tell when he me, thinks of that system, yeah, he's like, this is it. I've, it. I've come up with it. I've come up with the system that's going to solve all problems. It's like this. It's like these cryptographic computerized weapons and the world governed by, in this patchwork quilt, of corporate city-states. And I could go into, there's more and more stuff. He makes lots of jokes about like, well, you know, there's all these undesirables. What will we do with kind them? And of like Blade says,
0: Runner at, at that yeah. level.
1: Yeah. So he's like, what do you do with people who can't? Like, because it's it's like a customer service relationship. So like these these companies compete for customers because that's their tax base. So that's what makes them want to be good. At governing their their and, territories, and by the
0: way, there is a scary real world analog of this. Our fellow alumnus, Class of '08, Atusa Abrahamian. Do you yes. remember? She wrote. I her, follow her on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So she she her book was called I can't remember it right now, but um, I'll pull it up. But basically, it's it's kind of about like rich people buying citizenship in various in other countries, and you know, and I mean, like yeah, a lot lots of New
1: like, Zealand's ones. They think they can survive the apocalypse there.
0: Yeah, like there's there's survivalism stuff. There's like, of course, like financial scheme stuff. Like you know, in like the Seychelles and and whatever. But th- there is this like global market of. Of citizenship that is in part propelled by like some really scary and like deluded beliefs about you know, like what's that there's that sovereignty movement
1: yeah micro
0: states citizen sovereigns or citizens, sovereign like so, like people sovereign made, citizens sovereign yeah. citizens yeah. So, Will you say what sovereign citizens are? Well, there are like?
1: people who, like, they don't acknowledge any kind of government authority higher than the county sheriff or something like that. They're, like, the the only actually legitimate authority is is the county sheriff. Other, others, like, the federal government is totally illegitimate. And they just declare that they're not subject to the laws of the United States of America because it's an illegitimate government. And so, and, and also, yeah, so listeners, I would, I would suggest you check out the work of, Ad, of Atusa Abrahamian. The, the um, cosmopolites,
0: um, she, the coming of the global citizen is her book.
1: Yes, so she she covers kind of how sovereignty in the contemporary world is not like this System of coherent nation states with coherent borders was that it, in fact, kind of like fragmented and overlapping and postmodern, in a way. So what was I saying? So yeah, it's like a customer service relationship. So he's saying basically because they'll be competing for subjects, then it won't be a problem. But then he was saying, well, there's going to be some like totally undesirable people who like can't function. They can't follow the rules because the agreement between customer and corporation is basically like behave yourself and pay your taxes and everything will be fine we'll protect blast you. the shit out of you um, yeah no yeah, but there's some people who can't who can't said. uphold that, that that they're under the bargains or so what do we do with them and he's like oh we'll turn them into biofuel obviously and then he's like oh of course I'm joking um <laughs> He's like, oh, and then like, oh, we could just obviously use him as slaves. And he's like, no, I'm just kidding. We shouldn't use him as slaves.
0: But, but doesn't he say that they should be put in, it's like the Matrix, they should be put into like a little cell where they experience a, an immersive virtual reality. Yes. So that's his solution. So, so it's like, a rich, fulfilling life in a completely imaginary world. Virtual worlds of today are already exciting enough to distract many away from their real lives. They will only get better. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the idea. So you are literally put into a matrix. That's, his, that's, that's the solution to this problem, as opposed to genocide or, or slavery, which would be obviously much more likely because he says, well, that would be like bad PR. If you were the genocide, if San Francisco Frisk Corp were known as genocide committers, then no one would want to come live there or come visit as tourists and everything. So that would be bad for you. The point is, he uses irony and humor to, to mask his true beliefs in some ways, and, and, and it's hard to take him at his word when he says that the solution to Supposedly, socially undesirable people is is virtual reality in the, instead of slavery and genocide because he has like spoken about slavery and genocide in a way that's he's always like kind of trying to be funny or ironic about it. But it seems like he he thinks in certain cases that that those are acceptable. So yeah, I mean, I do have to say like political philosophers throughout history have used irony to kind of mask what they actually believe. Hobbes did it, Machiavelli did it, but it is like very. I mean, I, I would say, like, I was expecting to expecting to be, like, kind of disturbed by it. But it's more kind of, like, goofy and ludicrous uh, actually reading
0: it. Yeah, you know I and mean? how old is he? I would wonder, too. It, it it reads, like, something of, like, a young person, like, someone in their late 20s. He's know. 45. Okay. Also, Max, though, do you think that he, he has these, like, very provocative sentences that are, you know... Some people may say there's too much killing in it. I say you can never have enough killing, you know, that's, yeah. like, obviously meant to and it's it's part of this like upside down morality i feel like that i'm not i'm again i'm purposefully unfamiliar with the alt right internet you know thought but seems like that's part of it what do you think is is his importance and what is his the importance of his use of the medieval past so i would say Great this picture. Big
1: picture. I mean, it's a good question. He is a significant figure in this whole milieu of the alt-right and white supremacists in general, the online kind of this online right, which has been such a factor, um, in the past few years. And Steve Bannon, I think, read the blog. He's probably read Patchwork. I don't know what he thinks of it yarvin quote has reportedly opened up a line to the White House communicating with Bannon and his aides through an intermediary. Uh um, so source at some point
0: what what's the source on that?
1: Uh Politico. Yikes. So that was the case when Bannon was in the White yeah. House so it's obviously not true anymore
0: but he's still but, I think it's like in conversation with Trump unofficially. But okay, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so okay, so in terms of him reaching for the medieval past like this isn't quite i mean so he's taking some elements of the medieval past and remixing them through this kind of weird stem computer engineering point of view and then creating this dystopian utopia that libertarians always tend to tend to create but it's funny because he's
0: he's like the opposite because he's all about like the state should be super strong
1: yes the state should be so
0: strong and you should have like no rights Because if you have any rights, you'll infringe on mine. So let's just give it all to the state, which is like more like classic Nazi than like libertarian.
1: Yeah, that's true. And that's what's like, that's why it's neo-reaction. That's what differentiates it from other kinds of strains of of the far right, which tend to be like inflected by more libertarianism. Let me read a quote. He's talking about his theory. He says it is reactionary rather than progressive, which means that it is designed to work with hominids, not as they should be, angels without wings, but as they are, bipedal land apes. So he sees humans, this is like always very important when looking at a political... The philosopher, like if you want to accept that he's a political philosopher, is like, look at their anthropology, like what, how do they see humans? And he sees them as animals. So like they need to be treated like animals. And he says angels without wings. I think he's thinking of liberalism there. Like liberalism yeah. has this, uh, has this positive anthropology, but he doesn't talk about libertarianism, which basically sees humans as like rational, like computers, basically
0: like rational decision makers. So yeah, I was just thinking of that. I mean, <laughs> no, I was just gonna say there's an interesting I mean, like, I'm not here to, like, point out internal contradictions in this guy's thought because it's the tip of the iceberg. But in in this embrace of STEM, because I was was rereading uh, a bit of the Jane Mayer's profile of the Mercers while while we were offline. And their whole thing, you know, they're very into STEM, too. But it, it would be like if you get the state out of the way, people are just so rational that they'll just, you know, they'll figure it out. And we just need to clear away all these things like... Welfare and equality that like get in people's way, and so it's weird that he can embrace technology, which is a product of this modern liberal era that he thinks is so problematic. Like, if if, if the last four hundred years since whatever it is, sixteen seventy, whatever the whenever the fucking glorious revolution was, 1688, in 18, yeah, sixteen eighty eight. If everything's in sixteen eighty eight has sucked, then he we wouldn't have all these great cyber encryption keys, you know, or, or maybe to him the, those have been the products of they're the exception that proves the rule that like when markets are working without interference, they produce these great things like killer robots. Yeah, he talks about that. He's like, could you imagine? I mean, he doesn't quite explain. That's, that's
1: a good question. He doesn't really explain, well, would this stuff have been invented under you know, reactionary rule? But he does talk about you know, absolute monarchs. And he says, well, just imagine they had the kind of technological tools that liberalism has now and how well they could organize a city you know, how well they could organize society. They'd be so much better at it. Yeah. That,
0: not it's convinced. Just, and
1: I'm not, I'm not, yes. So the final verdict for me is I'm not convinced. There's a lot more to think <laughs> about. Um, I mean, I do think that like, so, so he's, you know, these guys, this is the kind of thing that's always a little bit uncomfortable. Is like these guys on the far right are, are critiquing liberalism and like people on the left also critique liberalism a lot. And
0: well, Marxist, that's like the whole premise. That's the whole
1: thing. Yes. And so, is there any value for critiques of liberalism from the left to look back to history for examples of that? I mean, it does seem like in lots of cases, you can do that. Like, you can look back to, you know, post-colonial studies, like, you know, or looking back to even in some cases, like anthropologists, looking back to, to more early society, like using that kind of knowledge of the human past to think of better alternatives to liberalism and capitalism is something that's done, but it's not really done within the history of the West. You know what I mean? Because I've thought like, well, could the Holy Roman Empire – like, I'm I'm someone who's, like, a
0: critic of, you know, the liberal nation-state. Right? Ottomanists do it all the time. Ottomanists
1: we, do, Ottomanists do it, all yes, exactly. Like the Millet the the system, yeah, it was so great and all that stuff, yes.
0: Well, it's more just like, it's like this decaying, decrepit, inefficient empire that, like, can't, like, fuck up your life too bad because they don't have their shit together. Right. Like, the, the late Ottoman Empire.
1: Yeah. So, I wonder, like, because sometimes I, I think about that, like, the Holy Roman Empire, could that provide in some senses, like an alternative to the rise of to like the nation state so and it just kind of makes me uncomfortable and i wonder like should we leave the middle ages to the right or should we try to reclaim it um i guess like what we're kind of circling around or what we both would think is that we should try to reclaim it and we shouldn't just give it we shouldn't just like abdicate it and just leave it as territory to be like used rhetorically um and intellectually by the right wing
0: And not just the right wing, just by by ignorance, by ignorant people. So, like, my answer to the looking to the past for alternatives, there's no alternatives in the past, right? But the past can be edifying, you know, so I I don't want to live in the Ottoman Empire, actually, but it's edifying to know that there was this multi-ethnic empire where um, for a long period of its history, there wasn't as much religious violence amongst its minorities, you know, but and by, and by mm-hmm. the way, they got really bad at the end, and it, you know, that changed. And, you know, it's edifying to know that there were economic structures that are a little bit different than capitalism, like the economic st- structure of like the shtetl, you know, and like how money was distributed amongst Jews in tiny Eastern European towns. I don't think you know we're in modernity, and so I think the risk isn't oh, do we like pick this wrong period of the past that was actually like a scary time that Nazis want to pick it too. I think the risk is simply simplifying. Our ideas about the past, simplifying the ideas about like how transmissible is that a word? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. These these alternatives are you know into a very different world and. I, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I'm not saying like,
1: well, maybe we should just say that like the Holy Roman Empire is a leftist alternative the, yeah, to the yeah, nation sure. state. But the point is studying the Holy Roman Empire and understanding it, you can understand that the nation state, the modern nation state is not a given. You know what I mean? And that yes. gives you, opens the horizon Absolutely. of thinking about it differently. And it provides some examples of how you can think about it differently, understanding that sovereignty doesn't have to be a, this unitary thing. It can overlap, it can fragment in the way that it it really does like in the real world sovereignty does kind of it it it's it's not such a sim- simple question you know so hilarious
0: was like maybe it was the of that well but also i think it's like you know you can't be scared off of a subject matter because bad people are into it because one thing i realized you know the beginning of college and i feel like the the era of like blaming nietzsche for the nazis you know was already ending by the time we got to college but yeah you'd hear that you know and then it's like oh the nazis were really into paganism they were really into ancient greece and and they were into fucking everything. They were ignorant appropriators and they were, it was a really adaptive thing. I think one of the most convincing, the best sentence I ever heard about fascism, a professor of mine, um, Dan Miron, Hebrew literature professor said, fascism is thoroughly modern. It, mm-hmm. the, 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 the common denominator is that it's modern and part of modernity is appropriating all these poorly understood um, versions of the past and kind of coming up with a fiction about the past to make, you know, authenticate your your belonging in this alienated world or something, you know, uh-huh. that that's a modern thing. Everyone's doing that. And then so, of course, the Nazis did it too. And they did it to every period in every direction. Future, they were futurists, they were pagans, they were, you know, and, and so you're going to have futurism and, and like backward looking thought among these alt right guys too. The, to me, that the scary thing is like some of the stuff that he identifies that would be like great in his, what we would call dystopia is, is already the case. Like that we are all kind of living in a virtual reality that. Is like, you know, happier than our, our real lives, you know? So the step from there to like, just putting us into like slave pods is like not even that big. That's what's so scary is when they, when they're right, it's not scary. Cause I think I agree with them. It's scary because like, it's a diagnosis of the world. Do you know what i mean? Yeah. Saying?
1: Yeah. Um, and there's more to say. I, I just want to say one more thing and then we can wrap it up on that. There's something strange going on there because Moldbug, he's one of the guys <laughs> who developed this red pill the oh, um, really? matrix idea of like you take the red pill and that's how you get the dark enlightenment. Dark enlightenment is this like gnostic experience of like fi- re kind of reconfiguring the way you see the world based on this pessimistic anthropology Uh, And understanding that democracy and liberalism are impossible, right? And so there's this weird, really strange reversal because he's saying that some people should basically be put back into the matrix Um, and we need to all come out into the matrix and then be put back. Some of us need to be put back. Will some people be able to handle it or something? I don't know. It's very strange.
0: And just one more question, like a Joe Pantoliano's pe- per- character in The Matrix well, eating the steak. Oh, I'm trying to remember what his perspective was. Though. What was his perspective? That it's that it's good enough, even though it's fake. It's like it's, I know the steak isn't real, but it it tastes
1: real. So what's the difference to me? I mean, why would I want to live in this hell world eating gruel? Uh, <laughs> if I can eat steak, and if I can eat steak, and it tastes just
0: like real steak. Last question. Does this guy think that the people who won't be able to adjust to his future world are, like, Jews and people of color? Does he have a – does it have a racial I'm sure he does.
1: No, yes. He is, is like, definitely – yes. So, he has stated the belief – I'm just reading from Wikipedia. He stated the belief that whites have higher IQs than blacks for genetic reasons. So, textbook, he has said, I am a racist. I believe in white supremacy. So, like, he has described himself as a, quote, outspoken advocate for slavery – um, oh my so, God. It's, it's like, <laughs> oh my so he's, God. he tries to be, yeah, he just tries, he, like, it's, it's hard to know exact when he means things sincerely, though. Um, but I do think he is like, yeah, he is as bad as you imagine. I think that generally, like you can just imagine, just like assume the worst, like he is, he is, he does believe in all these terrible things. He is like the, the super bad guy that he kind of seems like he is, but trying to like mess with you.
0: And he talks um, to Steve Bannon, bit. who is like, is the, re- like is one of Trump's confidants, the fucking president of America. Is,
1: yeah. So that's not re- great. Reality check. <laughs> that's That's
0: not great. <laughs> that's not
1: not great so it used to be like freaking niebuhr like everyone's like oh i just love reading niebuhr like everyone was into him Who's for niebuhr, a half century sorry. and now it's he's like he was like this protestant theologian and philosopher reinhold niebuhr
0: yeah i know he the name but i not know anything else
1: he, he was kind of at the center of american intellectual life in the post-war period uh-huh. but it's like everyone like if you act like you know like Comey is obsessed with Niebuhr and I think like Obama has talked about him a lot. So it's uh, like, he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And like, that, you know, that, we're that good because fall. we're great. And yeah. Um, we're good because we're great. No, it's like that kind of uh, liberalism where it's like, we're, we're like, you know, America is morally good. It, it's this kind of idea of like, yeah, American exceptionalism, we're morally good. We're a force for good in the world, but it's a more kind of rigorous version of it. So like you have to, you know, it's, it's people like, Masochists like Comey would be really into it, you know, because it's like we are good and we America is exceptional because like we're so um, disciplined and like we're so careful and we think so much and torture ourselves over the we'll sacrifice our whole democracy
0: because to yes. our like really high standards of rule following. Yes, exactly.
1: So and then, and then like. <laughs> Well, okay. But I mean, I'm not that familiar with Niebuhr, but he was like a smart guy. Now it's like this goddamn computer engineer writing, frickin' imagining like, I don't know, it was a video game style version of philosophy. And that's like the, the philosopher that's closer um, in proximity to, to the president. So it is pretty depressing. If anything, like not just because his ideas are so extreme to just like the decline
0: of intellectual qualities. Well, I mean, who, who's scarier, him or Sean Hannity? You know, who's like Sean Hannity? Yeah, well, Sean
1: Hannity is much more scary. But yeah, it's the whole thing. Like, Bannon is Bannon was seen as, like, this incredibly, like, intellectual Machiavellian character because he, like, read books. Like, that's all you have to do. Yeah,
0: Sean Hannity has, like, the education of, like, a gym teacher.
1: Yeah, but, like, if you read, if you literally, like, talk about how you read books, the the media will just go crazy over you and act like you're you're this super genius. Like, the, the only person who didn't work with was like george bush because he claimed he like read a book every day <laughs> and everyone was like yeah sure
0: wait senior um, or w w or you read a book like every
1: week or something like that he had like a he had like competitions with carl rove really it, it didn't yeah. work
0: because no one believed him because he was like yeah,
1: usually if you say broken. you read books, people are like, this guy's a genius. But uh, okay, he said like, he read books and I know like, you probably don't or you're de- Yeah, you probably skimmed them. Coloring um, books. Yeah, okay. So there's more to talk about with him, but we we've already been going for a long time again. So That's good. let's wrap it up and we'll we'll circle back to this stuff. I guess next time we gotta talk about you know something non-European though, because we're upholding white supremacy. Yeah, no, we Not are only talking about
0: Europe. I was trying to get, I was trying to get a before European hegemony, dude. Read yeah, it. it's it's great. I'll check it out. It's centruity. all right. Till till next time. Okay, bye.